Our topic tonight out of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, Pride Comes Before the Fall. Starting verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all peoples, nations, and languages in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. And so Nebuchadnezzar, ruler over Babylon, during the time when Babylon had come and destroyed Judea and the Jerusalem and the temple and took just about everybody captive to Babylon. And so now we're a few years into that and he is now giving a proclamation to all peoples, nations, languages in all the earth. All right? So he was a pretty powerful ruler uh, at that time. He ruled over Babylon and he took over several nations, not only Judah, but Egypt and many other places. And, um, and so he's making a proclamation not only to all the people under his now control, but also to all the earth. And he was, again, in a powerful position to be able to, to uh, get that message across um, to beyond his territory as well. So very powerful, this, uh, this story that he felt needed to be proclaimed to all the earth. Right? And so we want to proclaim it here as well. Verse 2. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. And so he's wanting to proclaim to all the earth about God. So here you got this ruler of the most powerful nation in the time. And he's proclaiming to everyone who's willing to listen, all nations, all people, all languages, and all the earth, that God is an everlasting God and his dominion is from generation to generation. This is amazing coming out of this man, Nebuchadnezzar, who uh, in uh, chapter 3 built a statue that he wanted everyone to bow down and worship and who, uh, because it was all gold, because in chapter 2 he had a dream that uh, he had a statue, saw a statue in a dream with a head of gold which gets replaced with silver and then brass and then iron and then down to the feet, iron and clay. And Daniel interprets it that uh, your kingdom is the head of gold and it's going to be replaced by another kingdom, which will be replaced with another kingdom and another kingdom. And he didn't like that interpretation after a while. And he said, no, 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 my kingdom is going to be an everlasting kingdom. It's going to be gold from head to toe. So he built a statue from head to toe. And now here in chapter 4, he's saying the most high God reigns forever and ever and has an everlasting kingdom and a dominion from generation to generation. That's quite a change that took place from chapter 3 to chapter 4. We're going to see how that took place. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace, and I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts on my bed and the visions on my head troubled me. Therefore I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And so he starts the testimony of how this whole process took place. He has this dream and he calls everyone to come and explain the dream to him. Now again, he's telling this to everybody who listen. And we have a testimony as well. Right? If we believe that the Most High reigns from forever and ever, from generation to generation, has all dominion, we need to be proclaiming that as well. This is a great example, and we need to be telling people. Maybe not your whole testimony every time, 
Maybe not from your birth to your death, you know, he doesn't do that here, he's just telling this one section. But sometimes we can just be telling what happened in our lives today or this week, and something is happening in our lives every day. Right? If you woke up this morning and your name wasn't in the obituary, then God did something mightily in your life today, right? So, so every day we have a testimony. Every day we can proclaim God's goodness and God's love. God is at work in our lives continually. And so he's proclaiming it, and we need to proclaim as well. So he calls all of them here to interpret this dream for him. And the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last, Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Okay, so he has all these wise men of Babylon come, all these Chaldeans and soothsayers, I have no idea what that is, uh, magicians and astrologers, whatever, crystal ball readers, palm readers, everybody and anyone, and they can't interpret it. Now, I don't believe they couldn't interpret it. I believe they didn't want to interpret it, and we'll get back to that in a minute. And then at last, he calls Daniel. Now, it's interesting, he refers to him as Daniel, but also as Belteshazzar. Now, when he took people captive, he indoctrinated them and tried to get them to, to, to convert to Babylonian ways and Babylonian gods and would use force. And so here he changed their names, Daniel, meaning God is my judge. And he didn't like that. So he, he makes them after his own god, Belteshazzar, and, and tries this transformation process to take place. It's an assimilation into the Babylonian ways. And so now it's interesting that here in this chapter he uses both names, and we'll see throughout the chapter he's using both names. And I think the reason that Belteshazzar is used is because I believe this chapter is not only in the Bible, but he proclaimed this to every nation and people and languages in all the earth, and so it was probably written down, published in some way, shape, or form, and distributed and probably kept in the Chronicles of Babylon which is pretty amazing. It'd be really amazing if we've turned up someday and we got to see the actual account uh, in archaeology, digging it up or finding it, uh, because it is proclaimed in the Bible. And again, here he's using Daniel's Babylonian name because he's proclaiming it to Babylonians and others as well. Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and no secret troubles you. Explain to me the vision of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. Now he saves Daniel for last and he brings Daniel in at last, at the last one. And I think there's a reason for that too. I think he knows that Daniel will tell him the truth. Right? He believes Daniel. He's built up a trust with Daniel. In chapter 1, Daniel took a stand uh, defying the king for, to be able to obey God and what he ate and and how he lived and to follow the Torah. And so Daniel showed and Daniel's friends showed that they had uh, courage and that they had principles and that they stood for right and what they believed what was right. And then Daniel chapter 2, Daniel interpreted the dream for him. And again, Daniel showed that he was willing to tell tough truths. And now here again, I believe he saves them for last, testing the other magicians and interpreters and soothsayers and all those guys, so-called wise men, 
But he brings Daniel in at the last, and he says, I know the Spirit of God is in you. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. Its height was great, and the tree grew and became strong, and its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. Okay? Big tree. Big tree. No big deal so far, right? You don't need a wise man to interpret that for you, right? Big tree. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens dwelt in the branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Again, nothing to write home about. So there's this big tree, and it's producing lots of fruit, and all the animals come, and they find shade under it, and they eat the fruit up thereof, and so it's a nice tree, a nice big healthy tree, fruit-bearing tree. I saw in vision while on my bed a holy one coming down from heaven, and he cried aloud, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Leave the stump and root in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze. Okay, so the tree gets cut down again. So what? Now it gets to be a little kind of strange dream, but dreams are strange anyway, right? So no, no big deal. Who needs, a, you know, again, calling everybody, making a decree for everyone to come? In the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with dew of heaven, and let it graze with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man, and let it be given the heart of a beast, and let seven times pass over him. So now this tree is a man, and now it becomes from a man, it becomes a beast, right? Well, maybe you've had dreams like that where things just get kind of really strange after a while, right? So it's one of these strange dreams. This decision was by the decree of the watchers and by the word of the holy ones, right? So now he's not only seeing the dream, now he's hearing this, this holy one who was sent proclaiming to him, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. All right? That's the most important part of the dream. That's the whole key there. That's the summary there. That we may know, and applies for us today, that we might know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he wills. God, the Most High God, He is in charge. He is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. In this dream, now back to Nebuchadnezzar speaking, this dream, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I've seen, now you, Belteshazzar, Daniel, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the Spirit of the Holy God is in you. And again, I don't think it's that hard of an interpretation. That these wise men couldn't come up with something. I think they knew what the interpretation of the dream was. And they didn't want to be the one to tell the king what the interpretation of the dream was. And so now he brings Daniel forward. And I think the king knew also. And he just wanted a confirmation or something. And so he brings Daniel forward as well. Daniel was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king said, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, may the dream and its interpretation concern your enemies who hate you. 
Right? So Daniel, right away, God impresses him, and he has the interpretation of it. And he's astonished, he's troubled by it, he doesn't want to share it. I don't think out of fear, but out of not wanting to hurt the king. Wishing that this wasn't what, it, what he knows it is. Wishing, I wish this was upon your enemies instead. So God had given Daniel a love for this king. How Nebuchadnezzar, again, was a tyrant, a hard ruler, went and conquered nations that had nothing against him. It wasn't defensive wars that he fought. He was going forth and conquering and conquering and conquering. A Napoleon, a Hitler, just going and conquering to amass for himself, taking over nations, taking away their sovereignty, killing their, their leaders and, and, and fathers and mothers and children and killing and slaughtering and taking captive and putting into slavery and taking a few and putting them in prominent positions. But still, Daniel became a eunuch. I mean, it wasn't a great life. He wasn't really being that nice. And yet Daniel wishes this was upon his enemies. God gave Daniel a love for this king. That's a miracle of God doing in Daniel's life. And that's what God will do in our lives as well. That God can give us love even for the most unlovable. Even those who might have killed our parents. I imagine Daniel's parents were killed by Nebuchadnezzar's armies. Killed our parents. Caused Daniel to be a eunuch. Caused him to be a slave in his courtyard. I doubt this is what Daniel wanted for his life. I doubt this is what he dreamed of when he was a child, of being, of some wise man referred to as a magician in, in, in some pagan Babylonian courtyard, not being able to marry or have children or family or make his own decisions or live his own life. Having to work with these other guys who don't believe like he does and have all these other crazy ideas. But God gave Daniel love for Nebuchadnezzar. And God can do that in our life as well if we allow God to rule and be the most high God in our lives. Daniel says, the tree is you, O king. You have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches into the, reaches into the heavens, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Right? And it was true. Babylon was just spreading out like a big, huge spreading tree. You're that tree. Babylon is that tree, this big, huge tree, ruling over so much, giving shade over so much. As the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, saying, chop down the tree and destroy it. They shall drive you from men. You shall dwell with the beasts of the field and eat grass like oxen. Seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he chooses. God is in control. He's the Most High God. He rules over the kingdom of men. Right? It might not always seem that way. The Napoleons and the Hitlers, and they may get their way for a time. But God rules and God raises up and God brings down as he sees fit in his timing and in his way. And as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you. 
after you have come to know that heaven rules. Pretty hard, pretty straight testimony. But God gives Nebuchadnezzar this dream, not to tear him down, not to beat him down, just like all the other prophecies we see in the Bible, all the other times all the kings and all of Judah and Israel were pled with by the prophets and prophesied against, was out of love, out of warning. In mercy, God's giving this, playing this out for the king, for the heathen king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. God is reaching out to him and showing him what will take place. And in mercy, he keeps the root, puts a band, the stump, puts a band around it, preserves it. O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Right, so a word of hope. Let God change your heart. Let God work in you. And it'll lengthen your prosperity. Right, there's a prophecy, there's a dream. It'll come to pass. But if you change your ways, like Nineveh before Jonah, God will change the prophecy. He's giving Nebuchadnezzar free choice. He's giving him a way out. He's giving him a warning. And pretty simple what he's asking. Put off sinning by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. And we see that theme throughout the Bible. Put off your sins, do what is right, and be merciful to the poor. Seems pretty simple. But really, in our own strength, it's impossible. To be merciful to others, to care about others, is not natural. That's not how our nature is. Our natural nature is to get. Our natural nature is selfish. Is to acquire for ourselves. If you have any doubt of that, just go up to any baby and take away the bottle. And you'll see how quickly he will cry and whine and be unhappy, right? He's not going to share it with you, you know? We're not built to share. It's not in our DNA to naturally share and to give, right? Unless we think there's some way we'll get something back out of it. Right? We're born greedy. We're born selfish. That's why capitalism works so well, right? That's why socialism and communism doesn't work. Because right? that's based on a heavenly realm. That's based on a loving and giving and sharing and equality. But that's not, that's not our human nature. Our human nature is greedy. To get, 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 get. Keep, 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 keep. Right? And so we store up, we work, and we try and strive to get more, to get more, to get more. Whether stuff or time or leisure or whatever it is. Right? We work very hard at not working even. Right? So we all for a purpose, all just so whatever will satisfy us, whatever will satisfy self. That means fame or prosperity or ease or laziness. Whatever it is, we work hard to get what we want. For some people, it's a lot. Workaholics, and for other people, it's nothing. Ease, right? Just to be able to do nothing. And whatever it is, but it's all still to feed self. So to put off sinning, well, that doesn't go with our nature. And to be merciful to the poor, that doesn't go with our nature. That's why we have the Messiah. 
to forgive us, to cleanse us, and to break that hold over our lives, and to transform us, and to recreate us into his image, through his spirit. And we see he did that in Daniel's life, and God can do that in our life as well. So Daniel's recommending that for the king as well. Put off sinning, do what is right, be merciful to the poor. And the poor, of course, doesn't always mean people who have less money than us. Right? That's one application. But poor, there's many poor, right? Poor in spirit, right? Caring for someone who's hurting, caring for someone who's grieving, caring for someone who's downtrodden, caring for someone who's sick and you're healthy, right? So it's caring, it's giving to someone else that, we don't, that they don't have. Maybe we have a bigger circle of friends. Maybe we're fortunate to have a loving family. You know, and then there's others who don't. They're poor in family. They're poor in friends. They may have a lot of money, but not a lot of friends or not a lot of resources, not a lot of connections. Might not be married or whatever, you know. And we can be friendly to them. We can bless them and if we have and they don't by being a friend. Some people don't have a lot of time. They work real hard. They got a lot of responsibilities. They got family. They got a lot of things to do. We, we might have a lot of time. They're poor in time. We're rich in time. We can give to them by giving them some of our time and helping them out and being a helping hand. Right? So there's lots of poor in lots of ways. Right? They might be rich in finances and all kinds of stuff, but not having time, and they're poor in that. Everyone's poor in something. And when we have God's Spirit, we'll be able to give from what we have. Resources, finances, time, love, caring, a listening ear. What we have and we give to others when we have God's Spirit upon us. And that's what he's asking the king. You like this big tree, you got all these resources, you're providing all this food and shade, be merciful to the poor. Seems pretty simple. But without God, it's impossible. At the end of 12 months, the king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? God gave him 12 months from the dream. Merciful. God gives us time. Plays it out. Gives us a warning. He doesn't enact things right away. And sometimes we think, well, I wish God would just bring them down right now. Bring them down right away. They did this to me. They did that to me. They're cruel and they're, bring them down. But God's merciful. Even to the Nebuchadnezzars, the Manassas, and the cruel dictators of this world, he gives them a time for their sake to come to the Lord. And so he gives them another 12 months. God's been working on his heart. From Daniel 1, 2, 3, chapter 4 now. Working, 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 working. Right? God hasn't given up on Nebuchadnezzar. And so after 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar didn't do the advice that Daniel gave him. And he's standing there looking at his kingdom, and it was mighty. It was big. And the city of Babylon was amazing. Hanging gardens of Babylon out there in the desert. Green and fruitful, strong nation, amassing wealth. He's looking out over it. Boy, I've got a lot. Able to build a statue 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, solid gold. Rich. 
powerful, big army, influence, ruling over nations, no one able to stop him. He says, look, I have built for my royal dwelling by my mighty power, for my honor and my majesty, this great Babylon. This is the Ishtar gate that entered into Babylon. Rebuilt today. This is, see that little, that's Barbara right there in the middle there. Right there, that's Barbara, right? So you can see the height, right? Of how tall, how big this entrance gate is, right? Now Barbara's short, you know, but, uh, but still the gate is still big, even, right? You know, even if someone else was standing there, even if Jim or someone was standing there, that's still, it's a big gate, right? That's huge, right? Very impressive, it's colorful. The color is still there today, thousands of years later. And the designs, the artwork, the animals imprinted on it, the flowers and all this kind of stuff. And these animals, look at these, these animals are three-dimensional. See how they stick out off the wall? Pretty amazing. Now this is not in Iraq where Babylon, the city of Babylon was. This is in Germany, <laughs> in Berlin. Right? The whole thing got moved there. Right? The Germans, I don't know, they stole it at some point in time or another. Right? They went and took it, and they brought it to, to Berlin, which is probably a good thing, because it probably would have been destroyed, left in Iraq. But so it was in a museum in, uh, in Germany, the Pergamos Museum, which is interesting in itself. So, so they took it all apart they, and reassembled the whole thing. It was a pretty amazing feat in itself. And beautiful, amazing, even today. You can imagine back in that day. This is a little model of it. On the side, you can see some of the real stones, uh, but a little model to kind of show you what the entrance would be. So they would march. So you can picture Daniel and Hananiah and Asariah and uh, Mishael and all the rest of the captives being marched through these towers. Imagine how high those towers would be with soldiers on top of all the towers and Soldiers down below, and, and all the people there lined up as you're being dragged in, chained, after you've been marched thousands of miles. Very intimidating. Everyone jeering or che cheering or booing or whatever at you, and, and you're being funneled through this passageway right up to the Ishtar Gate and let in before the king, right? If you thought you had any help when you're on your way there, you get there, you know there's no one going to help you there. You're going before the king, you're going in. And so the king of Judah and all the rest funneled through that passageway up to the gate area. Again, the beautiful mosaics all along the, the sides of it coming into Babylon. Now, you see that line there on the, the yellow banner on the bottom, right? Let me go back a few slides to Barbara. You see that banner there on the bottom of that line? The same line, right? So again, you get the height from that line. And look at this large inscription that was right there near the Ishtar Gate. Right? So very huge, a lot written there. Here's a zoom in on what it says, right? Can someone read that for me here? I didn't bring my glasses. Can someone read that? All right, so that's Babylonian talk, right? That's Babel right there, right? So, so he wrote this inscription there, and somebody in, translated and interpreted it, and here's a small portion of what it says, the yellow down there. I, Nebuchadnezzar, 
laid the foundation of the gates down to the groundwater level and had them built out of pure blue stone. Upon the walls in the inner room of the gate are bulls and dragons, and thus I magnificently adorned them with luxurious splendor for all mankind to behold in awe. Right? Almost just like what we read out of Daniel chapter 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, built this magnificent place right, for my majesty, my glory, so that people would see it and all mankind would behold it in awe. Right? So you're not, you're not only have in the Bible, the stones are crying out, matching up with the story. He wrote it, printed it, they found it, they reassembled it, and it's there today as a living testimony and a living witness. But again, it's not in Babylon, it's in Germany. Right? So all kingdoms fall, just like Daniel chapter 2 said. The head of gold was replaced, Babylon is no more. God raises up and he brings down as he see fit, sees fit. Verse 31, back to Daniel 4. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom shall depart from you. You shall dwell with the beast of the field. You shall eat grass like oxen seven times or seven years shall pass until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. What is this, like the third or fourth time this, is, this statement is being made? Verse 33, that very hour the word was fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from men in a grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven. His hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Poom. Right, so God gives him all this merciful time, waiting, 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 12 months go by. And there he is, I, great Nebuchadnezzar, built this great Babylon. That hour, he's now crazy and eating grass and crawling around on his hands and knees, not cutting his hair, not cutting his nails, like a madman for seven years. How quickly God can bring us down. How quickly the proud can be humbled until we know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Right? Maybe that's what we're going through. Maybe God's been humbling us. God's trying to get our attention until we recognize that God is most high. Oh, we may not be in a position like Babylon. We may not have like Nebuchadnezzar had. We may not have the riches and the power and the wealth. But we don't need a lot to think we're pretty hot stuff, you know. <laughs> there are people with absolutely nothing, in prison or wherever, <laughs> Their lives, their daily food fed to them, and they think they're hot stuff sometimes. We all think we're pretty wonderful in some way, shape, or form. Right? Even when we think we're horrible, it's because we think we're so wonderful that we shouldn't be, that more people should think we're wonderful, right? We think we're horrible because nobody loves me. No, everybody should love me. Why doesn't anybody love me? Why doesn't anyone care about me? I deserve to be cared about. I deserve to be heard. It's not fair. Not fair, not fair, not fair. As if some fairness should come to me. Right? We're still all filled with self. Even when we're thinking not fair and no, I'm no good and I can't do anything. 
and I'm horrible, and I'm miserable, and I'm ugly, and I, I'm this, and I can't do this. Who's the center of attention there? It's still self. Self is still on the throne. We're still all thinking about ourselves all the time. What are other people thinking about me? What do they think of what I'm wearing? What do they think about how I look? What do they think about my haircut? What do they think about my... Everything, right? Go through life. All just consumed with self. Looking in the mirror. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of, the all, of, of them all? How do I compare? How do I look with so-and-so? Who liked my tweet or who liked my post or who didn't or... How many friends and likes? How many commented about my car or not? Which is filled with self. Trying to gather for ourselves, build up for ourselves. So whether we think we're great or we think we're miserable, we think we can't. Right? Someone asks us to do, oh, I can't do that. Oh, I'm not able. Other people do that better than me. I, I just can't do that. It's still self. Low self-esteem is still esteeming self. It's still I, 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 I. Pity parties are all about self. Poor me. It's two sides of the same coin. Insecurities, fears, worries. It's all we're worrying about ourselves, right? We're really not worrying about someone else so much, right? Oh, I'm so worried for my neighbor. No, we worry about ourselves. We don't lose sleep over our neighbor. We lose sleep over ourselves. Am I going to have enough? Am I going to be healthy enough? How am I doing at job? How am I doing at school? What's the other people there think? What are the other kids there? The adults there? People think? My boss? The other co-workers? What do they think? Am I going to get the promotion if I'm going to get the raise? We're all filled with self. But the Most High rules. God is over it all. We need to surrender all to Him. He lifts up and He brings down. Surrendering self to him. Our selfish, greedy, self-absorbed. That's how we're born. Survival. Self-survival. But when we're changed, we're dependent on God. We're trusting in him. Surrender to him on a daily basis. In every aspect of our lives. There are many times I've started a project and starting to not work out. Oh God, I should have prayed. Trying to unscrew a light bulb and it breaks in your hand. Oh no, you know. So simple things can go horrible. We put God first in everything. Right? When you hear me pray before the sermon, I pray, Lord, speak through me. Right? Not Lord, help me. Lord, help me today, help me this, help me do this, help me to be better, help me to be good. It's not about having God as your helper. Right? If God's your helper, right? If, if someone's helping you do something, 
Right? They're helping you, right? So who's in charge of the project? Who's in charge of the activity? Right? You are. They're just helping you, right? Or if you're helping somebody, you went there, you're just going to lend a lending hand, right? You want God to give you a lending hand? Or do you want God to take over? The bumper sticker, God's my co-pilot, right? And then they came out with another bumper sticker. If God's your co-pilot, change seats, right? You, know, you don't want God being your co-pilot. You want God being the pilot, right? Dependent on him. Let him fly the car, the aircraft. Let him drive your life. Right before I get in the car, I, I pray. Lord, drive us safely. And I didn't think much of it. One day someone said, they were driving with me, they were passengers, and they said, you really believe God's going to drive the car? I said, yeah, he better. <laughs> you know? I don't trust you, nor do I trust myself to drive, right? So God, drive me safely, right? God, give me victory. God, transform my heart. God, come and live inside me. God, most high. God, you get the honor and glory. It's all about God, dependency on God. Not on self, not trusting in self, not worried about ourselves, not being self-absorbed. God first. Right? She said, summarizing the Ten Commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Two simple things, love God and love others. Neither one's natural for us, because again, we naturally love ourselves. Now, there's some people who, who twist that whole verse and say, see, there's a third commandment that we need to love ourselves. Right? Love God and love your, other, your neighbors as yourself. So you have to love yourself before you can love your neighbor. That's what they say. Crazy theology. Especially since we already love ourselves. Right? That's natural. That's the problem. That's the problem. We don't need to love ourselves more. We already do too much of that. It says, love God first and foremost, and then love your neighbor as you already love yourself. You're already consumed with yourself. Love your neighbor to the same extent that you already think about yourself. That's what he's saying there. And that's not natural. That takes a transformation. That takes a new heart. That takes a new life. That takes surrendering to God, confessing our sins, receiving the Messiah's forgiveness and death in our behalf, and the death to self, and a new life. Becoming new, all things becoming new. Letting God write his laws in our hearts and minds so that we love God and we love others. Right? The, he's summarizing the Ten Commandments there. The first four commandments are about loving God. The last six are about loving our neighbor as ourself. And there's nowhere in the tenth that it says love yourself. We need to get away from loving ourselves and loving God so that we can love others. And God will take care of us. That's what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar. Put off your sins. Put God first. Do what is right. Love God. And be merciful to the poor. And he didn't add on a third. And then also take care of yourself at the same time. <laughs> Go see a doctor and care for yourself. You know. We'll already do that. If we get sick, we're going to care for ourselves. We'll seek help. Love God and love others. Or else we'll go crazy. And we'll just be like beasts striving and scratching away at the earth, scratching away to try and make a living. 
working hard to be right, working hard to be religious, working hard to be godly, trying harder and trying harder like animals. Go from being like a person to an animal. Just like a, a, a hamster on a treadmill. Just running and running and running in this little circle thing and going around and round and round and not getting anywhere in our lives. Trying to build up and build up and build up so we can have the American dream. We can have a little tiny house, little postage stamp, little ticky tacky house on a little piece of land. Have a little car, a little matchbook car. If you're in a plane, you look over it, a little nothing. Little nothing. And then in the end, there's no U-Hauls behind a hearst. I don't take any of it with us. We scratch away with our claws, trying to feed and provide for ourselves and our families. All in vain. Vanity, vanity, vanity. All emptiness. Just like wild beasts. Living today, eating, drinking, being merry as much as we can, and then tomorrow we die without God. But when God is most high and God is lifted up, our senses come back. Reality comes, purpose comes, life comes. Otherwise, we're just like Nebuchadnezzar here, crawling around in the grass, feeding ourselves, going through the motions, same stuff, day after day after day, week after week after week, endless without purpose, without hope. That's why even when we have and have and have like Nebuchadnezzar, he still wanted more. Conquering that nation wasn't enough. He needed another, needed another, needed another. Never satisfied. That's how we all are, without God. Verse 34, at the end of the time, at the end of the seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. That's the only kingdom that's an everlasting kingdom. That's the only where there's life everlasting is joining on board with God, coming on with him, Joining with him, everything else will pass, everything else will dissolve, everything else will pass away. All the cars will dissolve, everything will dissolve, every, all the houses, all the stuff will all dissolve away. The earth will melt with a fervent heat. It'll all be gone. The only thing that will remain is our faith in God and trust in God. He remains forever. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that never passes away. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. Nothing. You're nothing. We're nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? And nobody can stop God. This is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. And he's right. He realized it, he saw it, he lived it, he had it all. Rich and famous, powerful. And he had nothing, and was nothing, until he surrendered all to God. Looked up. And when we look up and look away from ourselves, look away from our problems, 
Look away from our cares and our worries and our fears and look up and see God. Then it all comes to light. It all has meaning. It all has purpose. And then everything we do lives on. We leave a lasting legacy. God's Spirit through us, ministering to others, giving to others in whatever shape or form we have to minister to them. And then that lives on in them. And if they come to know the Lord, then it lives on for eternity in them as well. God's kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. From generation to generation, passed down for eternity, only with God. All the rest ends and ceases and will be no more. At the time, my reasoning returned, my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all those whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. Right, so Nebuchadnezzar is just exalting God, just praising God. What a difference. It went from praising self to praising God. Right? And again, we're either praising self or, or defaming self, putting ourselves down. Either way, it's still self. Satan doesn't care which side we're on. It gets us ping-ponging both ways. Right? One day or one moment, we're thinking we're better than someone else, and then the next moment, we're thinking, well, we're, we're worse than other people. Right? He doesn't care. It's all about self. But when we surrender to God, we give honor and praise and glory to God. And that's it. And we see the change take place in Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 1, he sees, wow, these guys. Chapter 2, he gives honor and glory to, to Daniel's God for interpreting the dream. And then chapter 3, when Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah take a stand and get thrown into the fiery furnace because they won't bow down to his gold statue. And if you missed those sermons, it's, go to shalomadventure.com and you can see the back sermons on that. Read in the Bible, Daniel 1, 2, and 3. And they came out, and Nebuchadnezzar says, your God is the most high God. He saw that God in the furnace with them. Your God is the most high God. And then he makes a decree. And anyone who does not, or anyone who speaks badly against Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's God, their house will be made a dunghill, and they'll be slaughtered and killed. Still wasn't fully converted. Got a picture of God, but not enough. But here, when the full transformation takes place, he's just praising God. He's giving his testimony. He can't hold it in. And when we give our lives to the Lord, we can't hold it in. We got to tell somebody. We got to share it with others. Because we got to give God, God the honor and glory. Right? If we don't want to tell what God did in our life today, this week, in our lives, we're dishonoring God. Right? Some great thing happens in your life, and you go, oh, no, I've just got to be humble, and I'm not going to say what... Because we think we're glorifying self. That shows how selfish we are. God does something powerful in our life, and we don't tell other people about it because we think we're glorifying self. Because we're filled with self. And we're taking away from God the honor and glory that's due God. God did the great thing in your life. God got you that raise. God got you that job. God got you that car. God got you the house. God got you that spouse. God got you that whatever. So God should get the glory. And we should tell other people what God did in our lives. 
And the only reason we don't tell is because we're selfish. They may reject it. They may say they don't believe it. They may say they don't like it. They may say, you know, whatever. We're worried about what they're going to say, what they're going to think. Because we're so filled with self. And when we surrender self, we want to tell everyone about what God has done. And we can't hold it in. I don't have to lecture you on sharing. When we give our hearts to the Lord, it becomes automatic. We go out and we share. And if we're not sharing, whether it's passing out a card, an invitation, or giving a testimony, or whatever, when we're, when we're not doing that, it's a sign to us. It should be a wake-up call to us. We're not loving others to wake up to where we're at. We may be very religious, but we're not transformed. We're not changed. We're not saved. We're holding back honor and glory due to God. We see when Nebuchadnezzar had this change, he's telling others, he's making this proclamation, not only within his own kingdom, not only telling everyone he knows, but telling everyone he doesn't know. To all the world needs to hear, to every nation, tribe, kindred, and people, without force, without manipulation, without coercion, without threats. He's just telling it to all. God is almighty. He reigns. He is good. He is loving. This is what he did in my life. He brought me down and he brought me back up. And that's how it has to be. Unless a seed dies and goes in the ground, it'll never grow. It just becomes a worthless seed. When we die, buried in the earth, not physically, spiritually, dead to self, he resurrects a new life in us makes us a beautiful tree, blessing others, providing shade, providing fruit, being a blessing to others, and multiplying to others. And it can't be held back when we surrender all to the Lord and give all our lives to him. And so in a moment when we pray, if God has convicted you on some area of pride, and again when I say pride, self, Pride, whether lifted up or, or debased, whether insecure or puffed up. Either way, the moment you can surrender that to the Lord, give it over to him, because our value is in him. His love for us, which is equal. He loves us all. He's given his life for us all. So we're all equal, no one's better than anyone else, no one's worse than anyone else. He loves us as much as he loves himself. So we're equal with him as far as he's concerned and his great love for us. That should humble us, bring us down, and also bring us up. Put us on an even plane with him. So we can surrender all in a moment, give over the pride, insecurities, and fears, and selfishness, if your mind has been absorbed with self and you've been loving self and thinking about yourself, thinking about what other people think about you, moment when we pray, just surrender that. Give that over to the Lord. Secondly, if you haven't been sharing what God has done in your life with others, if you haven't been sharing God with others, if you haven't been telling others about God, Facebook posts are all about what you've eaten for breakfast or whatever, not glorifying God. 
Not telling others, not willing to tell others what God has done in your life. Afraid of sharing a card or an invitation. In the moment we pray, surrender that to the Lord. And ask him to give you his spirit. So you can be merciful to the poor. If you're spiritually rich, you know the Bible, they don't. They may have a lot more money than you or riches, but they're poor in the knowledge of the Bible, the knowledge of God, and you have it. Share it. Be merciful to the poor. Thirdly, if there's sins in your life, God's calling you to put off sin and walk in righteousness. In a moment, surrender the sin, whatever it is, and receive God's forgiveness, receive God's cleansing. Whatever sin is there, whatever habit, action, rebellion, whatever is there, whatever is in disobedience to God, surrender it to him, receive his forgiveness, receive his victory. Nothing is impossible with him. He's up almighty. We think, oh, I can't gain that victory over that. Well, and that's filled with self. You're thinking you can't gain victory, and you can't, but God can. God is almighty. He's the most high God, and he's more powerful than whatever sin is in your life. And he reigns from generation to generation. And he gives to every, he'll give you his spirit, he'll give you victory over whatever sin and every sin. Put off sin, put on righteousness, and be merciful to the poor. If that applies to you, in a moment when we pray, let God do that in your life. Remove the sin, let him remove the sin, and bury it in Calvary, and let him fill you with his spirit, and his truth, and his righteousness. Maybe some other area that God's been speaking to your heart and mind about. Let him work his power, let him work his might. Maybe there's someone needing your help, needing your love. May God use us in ministering to others. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, we praise you and we thank you what you did in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Lord, there's nothing impossible for you. Maybe there's someone in our life we've given up hope that seems impossible. Nothing's impossible for you. Did that for Nebuchadnezzar, you can do that for us. Lord, transform our lives, work in us. We want to surrender self to you and we want you to fill us with your spirit. We want you to be honored and glorified in everything we do and say and think. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.